If you would turn with me once again to the book of Romans, in chapter 8. This morning we come to the second verse, but I want us to begin reading uh, in verse 1, because it is very important that we see how these two verses uh, connect. Romans 8 is certainly not a series of isolated statements. Paul is making an argument in this chapter, and this argument has a logical flow. And in particular, this second verse is giving an explanation, a, a basis for the great news that we saw in the first verse. And so let's read together Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read these first two verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now my contention is that this second verse teaches a very simple and a very glorious truth. You may remember last week I said that verse 2 is explaining the word now in verse 1, Paul said in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. So something happened in your life. There was an event, something occurred that took you from condemnation to no condemnation. And verse 2 tells us what it is. When we boil down verse 2 to its most basic meaning, here's what I think it is saying. The gospel has set you free from the condemnation of the law. The law of the spirit of life, I'm going to argue, is a fancy, purposeful way of saying the gospel. And the law of sin and death is referring to the condemnation that we deserve as sinners. And so to put it a little more precisely, here's what Paul was saying. Here is why you as a Christian are no longer under condemnation. The gospel, which came to you by the Spirit, through which the Spirit gave you life and united you to Christ, that gospel has set you free from condemnation. That condemnation that you deserve because you are a sinner and therefore are deserving of eternal death. Now, here's how I want us to look at this verse. Five headings, five sections here. First, I want to address a common misinterpretation of this verse. I want to address a misinterpretation that good men hold to, um, people I respect hold to it, uh, when I first came to this verse, I thought it was the right interpretation. I now think it's wrong, and so I want to explain that. Uh, second, I want us to consider why Paul describes the condemnation we deserve the way he does. In verse 1, he just said, no condemnation. In verse 2, he uses this elaborate phrase, the law of sin and death. Why does he say it that way? What's he trying to emphasize there? Third, I want us to ask, why does Paul describe the gospel the way he does? The law of the Spirit 
of life, right? The law of the spirit of life. We, we think that's weird. Why call the gospel a law, right? That's not the way we talk. Do you talk that way, right? Can you imagine verse 2 coming out of your mouth in, the, in normal conversation, and yet Paul is emphasizing something with the way he writes these words. He, he wrote these things the way he did on purpose. And so why does he describe the gospel this way? Fourth, uh, we're going to look at the heart of the verse. Then how does the gospel, which is just a message, it's, it's a collection of information. The gospel is a set of facts. How does the gospel set you free from the judgment you deserve? We're going to talk about that. And then finally, we'll end by drawing out an important implication. We, we spent five sermons on verse 1, and it was worth it, because verse 1 was, is, is worth that. Uh, we're just going to do two on this second verse, this morning and this evening, and we're going to pursue our study of this verse through those five sections that I've just outlined. So let's begin. Number one, a wrong interpretation what I think is a misinterpretation of this verse. And this is the interpretation that says that the word law in this verse should be understood in the sense of power. Okay? So wherever you see the word law in this verse, think of it as power. The power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Now, when we were in Romans 7, I referred to this verse in that way. I did so because when we were studying Romans 7, verse 23, Paul very much had something like that in mind. He speaks of this law waging war against this other law in his mind. This, he has this law in his mind, this knowledge of what he ought to do, this knowledge of what he ought not to do, but he described this other force, this other power, but he calls it a law waging war against the law of his mind. And so we talked at great length about how a law exercises power through the promise of blessings for obedience, through the promise of curses for disobedience. A law can wage power, can, can wage war and have power over us. And in that context, I referred to Romans 8 verse 2 and said Paul is using the word law the same way there. And that's what many of the commentaries say. I, I no longer think that's the case. I think it's right about Romans 7 23. I don't think it's right about Romans 8, 2. But before I explain why, I want you to turn on your minds and think with me for a second. What would that interpretation be saying? If we understand the word law in verse 2 as power, what would that be telling you and me as Christians? Okay, The power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Well, for those who take this view, Paul is talking about a glorious truth. A truth that was unpacked in Romans 6 by Paul himself. In this view, Paul was saying that the Spirit of God has set us free from our slavery to sin. From the present power of sin. Sin used to have mastery over you. But sin's power has been broken by a superior power. The Holy Spirit has come into your life. 
The Holy Spirit has changed your heart. The shackles of sin's power over you has been broken. And therefore, you now can submit to God. You can now say no to sin. You can now follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no temptation too strong for you anymore. That is wonderfully true. Amen? <laughs> right? we, we like that truth. That is, a, that is a helpful truth. We are thankful that that is true. In Christ Jesus, we have been set free from sin's domination. At the core of who we are, the controlling principle of our lives has changed. We used to be rebels at heart. Now we are submitters at heart. We used to be God-haters. Now we are God-lovers. Our wills no longer bow to the whim of every temptation, but our wills fight against temptation and long for holiness. It's true. It's glorious. It's just not what I think Paul is saying in verse 2. Romans 6, yes. I don't think it's what he's saying in Romans 8, verse 2. Here's why. Two reasons. They're very easy reasons. Number one, that interpretation doesn't explain the word for at the beginning of verse 2. Did you notice that the word, verse 2 begins with the word for? Right? In other words, verses 1 and 2 are connected by this word for. It could also be translated because. Right? Verse 2 is giving the grounds, the basis for verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, so whatever comes next has to explain how verse 1 can be true. But verse 1 isn't about the present power of sin. Verse 1 isn't about our slavery to sin. Verse 1 is about our guilt. Verse 1 is not about the power of sin. It's about the penalty of sin. Verse 1 is about condemnation. It's about judgment. It's about hell. And so verse 2 has to explain what happened in your life and my life so that now the guilt is gone. So that I can say, I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. Verse 2 has to explain that. And so the other interpretation doesn't work. The other reason I don't agree with the other interpretation is that it doesn't fit with the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. Because just as verse 2 explains verse 1, verses 3 and 4 explain verse 2. Folks, Paul is a very logical man, okay? He and Spock would have gotten along really, really well. I mean, there, he's just, he's a very rational, he's always building arguments. There's a chain to his flow of thought. And so verse 1, no condemnation. Verse 2 explains how there can be no condemnation. And the answer, as we're going to see, is that the Spirit used the gospel to set you free from condemnation. But then you have to answer that. How does that make sense? So verses 3 and 4 explain how verse 2 can be possible so that verse 1 is possible. And so there's that flow that happens. And if you interpret verse 2 as the power of the Spirit has overcome the power of sin in your life, you go a wrong direction. And suddenly the whole argument doesn't make sense. It's not about the power of sin. It's about the penalty. It's about what you deserve. 
and why you're not getting what you deserve. Church, aren't we glad that we're not going to get what we deserve? (laughs) And verses 1 through 4 helping us understand why we're not going to get what we deserve. Okay, what is the right interpretation of this verse? It is that the gospel, used by the Spirit, has set us free from the judgment we deserve. So picture yourself in a courtroom. You're the one on trial. And the law of God is clear. You deserve to die. Okay, so picture yourself. You're there, you're in the courtroom. Okay, you deserve to die. You're a criminal. You've broken the law. You have sinned. The law is a good law, but you're not a good person. You've broken it. And so you can expect that you are about to be consigned to judgment, to hell. And then something, something changes all this. Another law is brought into the courtroom. Another commandment. Something different comes in. The Gospel. It's the message of Christ crucified. And it says that if you believe on Jesus, all the sins that ought to send you to hell will be forgiven. You're going to be found blameless. You're not blameless, but you're going to be found blameless in the court of God. And as you hear this message, the Spirit of God uses this message to change your heart. You fall in love with the Savior who is going to set you free. You believe. And the moment you believe, you go from being in Adam to in Christ. And you are counted right before God. That's the flow of what's happening here. Now, as we studied verse 1, we saw a lot about our salvation. We saw that it was through the Spirit of God making us new that we come to faith. We saw that it was through faith, believing that we are put in Christ Jesus. We saw that it is when we are in Christ Jesus that we are right with God and there's no condemnation for us. But verse 2 adds this. It was the gospel that the Spirit used to make all this happen. It was the gospel that the Spirit used to give you the new heart, to give you the faith, to unite you to Christ, to justify you before God. It was the gospel. That's the point of verse 2. It's the gospel. Now, second part of our study. Why does Paul describe the judgment we deserve, the, the condemnation we've been saved from, the way he does in verse 2. The law of sin and death. Do you see that phrase? Second part of verse 2, the law of sin and death. The main word is the word law. You've been set free from the law. And then he describes the law. The law of sin and death. This word law is front and center. So what law is this? What law demands that you and I be found guilty before Almighty God. What law is it that we have broken? Well, church, there can be no doubt, at least in my mind, that what's in view here is the moral law of God. The moral law of God. This is the absolute law. This is the ultimate law. 
This is the law to which all people of all races of all times have been bound. Church, there has never been a person in the history of the world who was not under this law. The moral law of God was written into the hearts of men the day we were created. The moral law of God was given to Adam in the garden. Very simple terms. Obey and you will be blessed. Disobey, you will be cursed. The moral law of God is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized it even more. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the moral law of God. And we've all broken it. And it stands against us now declaring that we deserve to be punished. Mount Hermon, it is our belief in this law that explains why we see things so differently than our society around us. Believing that there is an absolute moral law of God changes the way you see everything. We live in a time of moral relativism, do we not? Our society no longer believes in an absolute law to which all people will be held account. We are told that each man is a law unto himself. I get to decide what's right for me. You get to decide what's right for you. These two positions are completely contrary to one another. Absolute moral law that binds all people. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. Two competing worldviews. And that's why there are clashes happening all over our country and all over this planet between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. It's the difference between Sophocles and Protagoras. Sophocles was the famous playwriter in Greece. You remember his story about Oedipus, King Oedipus. But in that story, King Oedipus says this. He says, I only ask to live with pure faith keeping in word and deed that law which leaps the sky, made of no mortal mold, undimmed, unsleeping, whose living Godhead does not age or die. In other words, he speaks of a law that is higher than man, that was not made by man. It comes down from heaven. It is undimmed, unsleeping. This is a law you cannot escape. This is a law that does not fade. This is a divine law. It comes from one who does not age nor die. That was Oedipus's view. There's this great divine moral law. That's what we think. So we follow Sophocles. But then there was Protagoras. That's our society. What did Protagoras say? Man is the measure of all things. You're the measuring stick. You get to decide the law. There is no higher judge than you. You get to judge. Now, Listen to the words of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy writing for the majority in the case Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Okay? These are the words that this justice used 
to help support why he and the other justices in the majority were upholding abortion as constitutional and as a right for women in this land. This is what he writes as his justification for why abortion should remain legal and seen as a right. He says, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Did you hear that? At the heart of liberty is your right to define your own concept of existence, your own concept of meaning, your own concept of the universe, your own concept of the mystery of human life. To be truly free means that you get to define things the way you want to define them. Not to look to God in humility and ask Him to define them for you, you know, because He's smarter than us and wiser than us, and loves us more than we love ourselves. No, he says true liberty is found in ignoring what God has said and becoming our own gods. I define my reality. You define your reality. Justice Kennedy said that's liberty. Do you know what the Bible calls it? Slavery. It's exactly what Romans 6 is talking about when it talks about slavery to sin. And you in Christ Jesus have now had that slavery broken. Folks, the human heart is not good. The human heart is not neutral. It is by nature depraved. And therefore, human beings will always define truth and good and beauty in depraved ways. If we get to make the definitions, they're not going to be good definitions. When moral relativism is firmly rooted in the highest court of our land, the place where justice is to be most represented in our society, you can see why our culture is in the mess that it's in. The one institution that's meant to stand for absolute justice and morality is bought into people must be able to define for themselves what is good, right, and true. Why do people like moral relativism? Well, they like it. You and I and our old nature still like it because it allows me to say that what I like is right and what I don't like is wrong. It allows me to justify my sins. It allows me to determine right and wrong based on my preferences. Who are you to tell me that homosexuality is wrong if I've declared it right? And what makes your opinion better than mine? You can choose your own ethics, but you have no right to impress your ethics upon me. In fact, as we've said before, the only absolute law that our moral relativistic society holds to is the law that there is no absolute law, which means it's a self-defeating argument. Nothing has done more to promote this moral relativism in our day than the theory of evolution. After all, if all we are is a chance combination of atoms that have come together by chance, how can there be an absolute law? I am who I am because of my biological makeup. 
I don't have free will of my own. I am a result of nature. I am doing what the chemical reactions in my head tell me to do. I cannot be held responsible for my actions. And how can you, one combination of atoms, tell me, another combination of atoms, how I ought to act or behave? There is no morality in a truly evolutionary worldview. There's no standard of authority. You can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, but there is no true moral authority. In a world like this, all dignity is gone. In the world of atheistic evolution, there is no human dignity. Why should I respect your right to privacy? Why should I respect or care about your safety? Why should your needs or your concerns mean anything to me? Again, you're just one heap of atoms. I'm just one heap of atoms. You're just one combination of chemicals. I'm just a combination of chemicals. We're both going to be gone in the end. We're headed towards a different kind of species in the future. We've seen this moral relativism a lot lately. I'll give you one example of it. This was about a month or two ago. It was when one politician was coming out after another to say that they had changed their minds about gay marriage. Y'all see that a couple months ago, right before the Supreme Court made their thing? All of a sudden, we had all of these senators and representatives coming out saying, I've changed my mind. Gay marriage is now right. I believed it was wrong before. It's right. One example was Rob Portman. This is a Republican senator. Rob Portman declared that he was changing his position on gay marriage. He used to think it was wrong, now he thinks it's right. And what was his reason for changing his position on gay marriage? Answer, his son is gay. Now let me ask you this question. Does the rightness or the wrongness of something change based on whether or not someone we love is involved? Does the rightness or wrongness of something change based on whether someone we care about is involved? So could I, for example, say, I used to think stealing is wrong, but my son is now a thief, so I've changed my mind. Now, I'm not trying to demean Senator Portman or his son. I'm simply showing how... In our culture, the morals that people have are shifting. They're changing. They're not absolute. They're not rock solid. As the culture changes, the morality is changing. People that used to think gay marriage was wrong two years ago think it's right today. Something changed. There's nothing steady there. There's nothing permanent. Why? Because we believe we can change it. I believe that I have the power to change what is right and wrong. That's the way I act. As Christians, we must utterly reject moral relativism. Morality is nothing less than that which reflects the character of God. Let me say that again. True morality is nothing less than that which reflects the unchangeable character of God. The laws of this land might be created by politicians, 
But the moral laws of God that rule this world are an expression of God Himself. And they will never change, for He never changes. What was right and what was wrong 2,000 years ago is just as right and wrong today. There is an absolute law. And by the way, even as our culture embraces moral relativism and tries to act like there is no absolute law, here's the little secret. Everybody deep down knows there's an absolute law. Everybody deep down knows that let us try all we want to say we're going to make our morality. There is a superseding morality to which we all must adhere and we will be judged on the last day. It's Romans 1. People try and suppress this truth, but they can never do it completely. And there are times when this comes out. Romans 2, 14 and 15. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Meaning, they don't have the Ten Commandments. These are people that don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have the law of Moses. But they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul says, just look at what happens in the consciences of human beings. It's obvious that deep down, everyone knows there's an absolute moral law. By the way, if there's an absolute moral law, there must be a law giver, right? This is the law that I'm arguing that Paul is referring to in verse 2 of Romans 8. Now, this truth and understanding this truth, um, no one helped me grasp it better than C.S. Lewis, uh, particularly in his book, Mere Christianity. I know many of you are probably familiar with with this, but he was the first to help me really get that this absolute moral law of God truly exists even when people act like it doesn't. And so I'm just going to read C.S. Lewis here. I want you to listen to what he is saying. This is great. This is just good stuff right here. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it's merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from the things people say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. Now what interests me about these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man nearly always tries to make out that what he is doing doesn't really go against that standard. Or that if it does, there's a special excuse. He pretends that there's some special reason. That in this particular case, there's a reason why the person who took the first seat should not keep it. 
or that things were quite different when he gave the first bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks very much, in fact, as if both parties have in mind the same kind of law or rule of fair play, or of decent behavior, or of morality, or of whatever you would like to call it, about which they are really agreed. And they have. You see, if they hadn't, they might, of course, fight like animals. But they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong really are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that the footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Now, this law or rule about right and wrong used to be called the law of nature. This law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. They did not mean, of course, that you might not find an odd individual here or there who did not know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or have no ear for a tune. But taking the human race as a whole... They thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. And I believe they were right. If they were not, then all these things that we say about the war, he's talking about World War II, were nonsense. What was the sense in saying that the enemy was in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at the bottom of their hearts knew just as well as we did that they ought not to have practiced? If they had no notion of what we mean by right... Well, we might still have to fight them, but we could not any more blame them for what they were doing than we could for the color of their hair. So he just points out from the observation of everyday life, people know this law exists. And this is the law which Paul was speaking of in our verse, the moral law of God, known by every person on planet Earth, a law that we have all broken, a law that demands we all be condemned. And the reason that Paul emphasizes the law of God in this verse is because it really is the problem that must be solved. The only way for us to move from condemnation to no condemnation is that this law of God has to be satisfied. Justice must be served. The law of God will not allow for any sins to be ignored or for the dishonoring of God to go unpunished. And our verse teaches that it is through the gospel that we go from this law condemning us to this law being satisfied so that we are no longer condemned. Our verse teaches that it is through the gospel that the Spirit of God unites us to Christ so that all that Christ did in His life and death applies to us, satisfying the law, so that we are now free. Now, there's more to say on this point, but let me close by calling us to feel the weight of the glorious words, set free. Just think about those words, set free. Christian, whatever else might be true of you, this is true of you. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a fact. This is an unchangeable fact about you. You have been once and for all set free from the condemnation of the law. This was our theme last week. It's the theme of the passage. It's our theme this morning. Rejoice in what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Love Christ. Worship Christ. Give Him all that you are because salvation is of the Lord. You deserved hell. You have the moral law of God standing against you. Your sins piling up like Mount Everest before you. And through Christ, through Christ's life, through His death, through His resurrection, that whole Mount Everest of your sin is washed away. And all the guilt of an eternity in hell has been taken away so that you now have the promise of heaven. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Do you feel set free? Are you living as a set free person? Right? How strange for a man who deserves the death penalty to be set free and then to still be walking around all depressed and complaining about the littlest things. When you expect that man to be skipping, dancing, rejoicing, having a new look at life. Dear friends, the gospel by grace has come to us. And by grace we've believed and we have been set free. Heaven is our home. And not hell anymore. Are we living as set free people? Are we rejoicing as set free people? God, give us the faith to believe this so that we'll live like it.